Welcome back. It's time for another episode of WVU Marketing Communications Today. Brought to you by the good folks at West Virginia University. It sits squarely at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and modern marketing practices, and the woman who is the traffic cop right at that intersection is Susan Jones. Hey, Susan. Hi. How are you today? Okay. Have you got your uh, stop sign up there? Is everything stopped? Have you got all the traffic uh, moving, or is it all frozen? we've got it moving. Yes, we've got it moving because, you know, our program's 100% online, so when we went into social distancing, we were all set. Why not? It it makes so much sense. You know, my wife is a perfect example. For years, we have a she has a daughter from her first marriage that lives in Texas, and uh, our our daughter lives across town, and we have grandchildren. And I keep saying to her, "Why don't you, you know, Zoom with these people? Why don't you use FaceTime?" Oh, I don't want to do that. Now all of a sudden, (laughs) she's like, "Show me how to do all that." You know, we're all we're all being forced into this world that you've been living in already here. So uh, you've already been swimming along. I've been teaching on line for various schools for 22 years now. Wow, wow. And everybody is rushing to try and figure this out. In fact, it's weird. I I may have this wrong, but I, I'm in California. I think California put a moratorium on online teaching. They thought it was going too far away from classrooms and too much online. And then suddenly, oops, they reversed that real quickly. Right. Now everything is had online. To. Absolutely had to, right. <laughs> so who did you bring online today here with you? Yes, we have Dr. Shara Chakraborty with us. And she is a risk and behavioral scientist. Dr. Chakraborty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I just sure. have to ask her if she anticipated the risk that we're in right now here. Could anybody have realized where we'd be at just three months ago? Well, I would say absolutely. If you ask anyone in the infectious disease community and field epidemiologists that are stationed at hotspots around the world, from Senegal to the Middle East to China, they saw this coming. They had been predicting an infectious disease outbreak for not if, but when. And there's 1.67 million identified microorganisms that live inside animals that potentially could be zoonotically transferred to humans and then result in what we're seeing, this human-to-human transmission. So this is actually a very predictable outbreak, and we can get into a little bit of why why we didn't exactly have the communication in place to deal with it once this inevitable outbreak emerged. Got it. This is a very crucial time for you, and I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. You're also planning for Earth Day. So tell us what Earth Day 2020 is going to be like. Yeah, this is actually the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And so it's a big event, as you can imagine, and it was going to be massive here in Washington, D.C., where I'm based. Every year there's a setup along the mall where the Washington Monument is, and there's a rock concert. There's plenty of celebrities that come in and share and lend their talents to getting attention around Earth Day and all the efforts surrounding it. Obviously, all of that, given COVID-19, has been canceled. So all of the energy and resources is being reallocated towards this virtual global conference that's being put on. So it's three hours of live global programming from Monday to Friday of next week. And then there's a special hackathon on April 25th. All of it is free. You can register online at the website wedonthavetime.org or on Earth Day Network's website as well. It's also in partnership with the third group, Exponential Roadmap. So it's a partnership that's very global, and the idea is even if we can't physically put bodies in the streets and really show our passion and support for climate action, that doesn't mean we can't do it virtually. It's actually a very exciting Earth Day in that sense, because we'll probably have millions more engaged because we're giving access to people around the world this way. Wow, that's wonderful. 
Let's step back a little bit, and your field is behavioral science. Can you tell us what behavioral science is, just as a little uh, refresher here? Sure, and I won't get too technical. I promise not to be the academic lecturer, which is how I started my career. I also started my career applying behavioral science to infectious disease, which is why COVID-19 is so relevant right now in the work that I do. And then I sort of switched avenues towards climate change, and it's actually all very related, and that's important to remember, is that our behaviors are part of a complex, connected ecosystem, and the decisions we make and the way we behave and engage with the natural environment has impacts not just on the environment, on the climate, on infectious disease outbreaks, but also on how we live our lives, engage with each other, and the best outcomes that we can hope for. So it's a very complex and interconnected, and that's the study of behavioral science, is what are the risks out there? Why do we assume people want to maximize their outcomes? And that's the assumption that economics makes. We maximize our outcome and our ultimate utility. What behavioral science has found is that human beings systematically depart from those rational choices that lead to best outcomes. And we have actually found in studies and have proven very robust over 30, 40 years of research that we actually fall prey to innate biases and heuristics. We are going to make decisions more based on emotions, feelings, and value-based factors than we are on the reality of the base rate statistics of risk. So it's why and how we behave based on how we perceive risk as opposed to the reality of that actual risk. That's the study of behavioral science. It brings in cognitive psychology, neuroscience, behavioral economics. All of that together paints a real picture of human behavior and how we make judgments about risk. Got it. You've been quoted as saying that we as people are cognitively lazy. Does that fit in with what you've just said? Why are we like that? I mean, it really worked for us, right? Because we're alive today and we are thriving as a global community. And that's because we cooperated in tribes and then we moved from hunter-gatherers into hunters and then from there to having a civilized society. And part of that was because of the way our brain is wired. And it worked for such a long time. We would see a snake or a tiger in our natural environment. We would assess a risk immediately and we would run away. Those ancestors of ours that didn't react in that way, we probably aren't related to, right? Right. So that (laughs) ability to assess risk and respond and react has worked for us for a long time, but it's lazy today. It's lazy because of how far we've evolved, how far we've come, and what a complex interconnected risk landscape we live in. Our brains are still wired in the more similarly to our, our ancestors than they would be to a supercomputer that could really scan the risk landscape and identify what we need to be concerned about, prioritize those risks, and then allocate time, attention, resources, and people to addressing those risks. We're cognitively lazy in that sense. We haven't caught up to the science and technology that has advanced the risk complexity around us. So it's worked for us for a long time, so I give it props for doing that. But where we are today, we find ourselves being finding that our brains are actually working against us. We shouldn't necessarily trust our immediate reactions to different risks. It might be just a relic of our past, of our ancestors, rather than the reality of what we're facing today. As a follow-up to that, there are a lot of people on social media saying, I have all this time at home, I should be so productive, I should be starting new hobbies and so on, but then others are saying, well, it's that fight-or-flight reaction kicking in. Does that make sense? Well, I think there are different ways that people respond to these types of disasters. And again, COVID-19 follows 
things like SARS and MERS and the swine flu is H1N1 and bird flu. And so we have years of evidence of how humans have responded and reacted to these kinds of outbreaks and what the reactions are. And unfortunately, what we've come to see is, well, first, this really has been the first time in history that we've had this level of severe social distancing measures that have been put in place, more or less, and affected this amount of the population around the world. So there's a lot to be learned and gleaned from what we are going through right now. I look forward to seeing in the coming months and years the outcomes of some of the observational and then experimental studies. We're in a massive global experiment right now, so it'll be really fascinating to see what the takeaways from that are. But that being said, what we've learned is there is very short recall from these types of disasters, and this is true not just for infectious disease but climate change impacts. Think about hurricanes and flooding and um, severe droughts and wildfires that we've also been hearing a lot about in the last year, last couple of years. And what ends up happening in the period when it's actually happening, people respond initially immediately with fear because they've lost some sense of control. They have been exposed to a risk that they did not ask for, and there are certain things that impact our risk perception, right? How familiar is the risk? How much do we dread it? How much catastrophic potential is there? Is it voluntary or involuntary? In the case of these climate change impacts and infectious disease outbreaks, we haven't asked to be put in this situation. Is it natural? Can we control it? Who's affected? In the case of COVID-19, this appears to be, will be endemic with us going forward, and it has a disproportionate impact on vulnerable communities like the elderly, like those with underlying conditions. All of these are triggers for us cognitively that result in us wanting to respond in a way to really regain control. So you have some people that are going to respond in that moment where they hoard supplies and they do panic buying and buy foods that they know are going to go bad. But again, it's to gain some sense of control over an exposure to risk that was never asked for. We see the same in relief and recovery post major climate change events. It's one of those things that we can really predict but we can also account for and we can take advantage of. If we know how people are going to behave, which we do, which we've seen, again, as I've said, through these different disasters, and what we can do is take advantage of the fact that we have people's attention. People are scared. People are spending time trying to figure out what they can do, what actions they can take. We need to communicate and put in place behaviors that are going to be positive for individuals, their families, their communities, and that persist going forward. What we don't want is for people to forget how bad this was and what happened. And maybe in the case of COVID-19, that won't be the case. But think about swine flu. Do you remember? Do listeners remember uh, how they felt and how long they felt scared after it was more or less controlled? And think about bird flu. Think about the various hurricanes we've experienced in the U.S., for example, we have short recall and we forget and then we get complacent and that complacency is what keeps me up at night because that is the biggest risk we have ensuring that we don't have this happen again when nothing is going wrong nobody is concerned and then when an inevitable disease breaks or an inevitable climate change impact happens we panic so we need to take this time and take advantage of having the world's attention and communicate in a way that is effective and that good behaviors are put into place to prevent these disasters from coming up again. Thank you. That's great. I have many more questions for you, but we have to take a short break right now, so I'll be right back with you. Sure. West Virginia University's new Digital Marketing Communications Master's degree program. It's fully online 
and can be completed in one year. With built-in certifications from platforms like Google and Facebook, the program gives you the strategy and the skills to reach audiences on existing and emerging media like this. Learn more at Marketing Communications, all one word, marketingcommunications.wvu.edu. And for those of you who love going to West Virginia each year to their Integrate Conference at WVU, West Virginia University, there's good news. This year it's moved online. Don't have to make the trek all the way down there. You can get marketing communication to experts from a variety of industries exploring how and what to say during this unprecedented period. View the schedule and tune in to the live sessions at integrate.wvu.edu. That's integrate.wvu for West Virginia University.edu. And now back to Susan and her guest. And can I ask one quick question? I'm just fascinated by what you're sure. saying here. We have had a thousand shows on the radio station already about the new normal, how everything's going to be different, how this is going to change. Our, we're going to be online more. We're going to shop less personally, all this stuff. But if I'm listening to the good doctor right here, she's saying it might not change everything. We might just uh, cover our ears and say, oh, thank goodness that's over and shake our heads and go back to th- the way things were. I don't remember what it was like during the swine flu days. I'm a history buff, and I read up on this the massive uh, Spanish flu in 1918, and they said it didn't really change our behavior. It was over. When it was over, everybody just sighed a breath of relief and went back to doing what they're doing. So I'd love her to comment on that. Are we, get, are we entering a new normal, or are we going to go back to the way it was? Yeah, I mean, we are human, we are beings of habit, and we do regress to the mean, and we do go back to what is comfortable, but we can change, and that's why it's so critical now for those who can communicate and put best practices in place to create that new average of what is expected from people. So people will go back to doing what they always did unless there is a new societal-wide policy or norm or regulation law however we want to actually incentivize people to change behaviors this is the time to do it if we don't take advantage of again having everyone's attention and putting in new normals in place you're definitely going to see regression to higher behaviors and it's interesting you brought up the spanish flu because i found it frustrating that we're relying on that so much i realize it's the only infectious disease that that has any sort of similarity in the scope of what COVID-19 is doing and the extent to which it's affecting the world. But we're talking about data from 100 years ago, and that's back when women couldn't vote. So that was a very different society, very different in terms of interactions and where the communal places were that people were engaging with each other. And there was generally just a lot less people on the planet. And so really, this disease is not nearly as bad in the sense that if it had the same mortality rate, Given what we have in terms of interaction, transmission, speed of transmission, speed of transport, I mean, just the ability to get around the world as fast as we can today compared to 100 years ago, I mean, this would be really disastrous. And it's not that COVID-19 isn't bad. I'm saying it could be a lot worse. This is not disease X. It's a highly dangerous disease, but it's not the disease that is a combination of highly transmissive and highly lethal. That disease if and when that breaks, and that's something infectious disease experts are truly concerned about. From the infectious disease community, this is still considered a mild disease. So when, for when that disease inevitably comes, we need to completely use COVID-19 as an opportunity to see, look, this was bad and it was mild. So imagine when that really bad disease emerges, 
what have we learned and what are we going to change going forward so we're not relying on data from 100 years ago. We really need to make changes in society today. We need to change bad human behaviors. And the number one reason that this disease is out is because of our engagement with the natural environment and the poor way that we have behaved with the natural environment. We are encroaching on habitats. We are increasing in number. And just generally, the trends towards urbanization, increased population, a warming planet, is going to inevitably result in more infectious diseases. That is a trend that comes along with the planet warming. So what we don't want to see happen is for this to become more regular and inevitably for that really bad disease to come out. So what do we as humans need to stop doing now? What do we need to tell humans to stop doing now? One, wildlife trade. There's absolutely no need for engaging with these exotic animals that have diseases residing inside them. These viruses don't affect the animals, but they're bad when they come out. They impact us. And I say this being facetious, I say that this disease should be mad at us because it was minding its own business, but it's our interaction (laughs) with, in this particular case, with bats, right? Why are we engaging with animals that we naturally do not have a historical relationship with? And then we're also creating these fertile breeding grounds for viruses where you're having interactions across species in wet markets for human food trade. These are human-made bad behaviors that are resulting in these viruses to emerge, to interact with one another when they would never naturally do so, and giving them all of the potential to mutate, cross into humans through zoonotic transfer, and then human-to-human transmission happens. We and our behaviors are making this more likely. So that is something we need to take advantage of now and change. Going forward, at the very least, I expect to see those things happen. That's very good information, and clearly, Dr. Shada Chakraborty, you are a great resource for this. One of the things you've talked about is that some communicators are doing a poor job right now. If you mentioned something about top-down communications and how there are problems inherent in that. Also, who do you think is doing a good job of communicating about COVID-19? Thank you for asking that, because my background is in risk perception and communication primarily, and I apply it to these major global risk. What the risk communication community has been saying for as long as I've been studying it, and much longer than that, is that you can be proactive about communication. It should not be a reactive response to a major outbreak. Rather, there is a pre-crisis planning stage. Again, we know certain things are inevitable. We know impacts of climate change and infectious disease are bound to happen. There's planning that can go into place. So you can have consistent communications ready to go. You can test them with certain focus groups so you can see how people are receiving it because there's no point in releasing communications if they're not going to be interpreted as intended. That's a complete failure because you don't want people to, one, ignore it and become even more complacent or to respond negatively, to respond in a way that's counterintuitive to the communicator's intention. So there's ways to prevent against that by testing communications well in advance and identifying spokespeople across trusted organizations that have a relationship with one another to ensure that they are communicating, they're collaborating and they're communicating consistently. So the message is the same coming from these trusted organizations. All of this has been put in place post-pandemics that have occurred in the past. And it just seems to me with COVID-19, so much of that has just been ignored and to a real detriment because ultimately without good communication, you're not going to have evidence-based policy. How are you going to convince people that the policies you're putting in place are coming from real proactive preparedness and planning? 
What we're seeing with COVID-19, especially in the United States, is a real ignoring of all of the preparedness, which wasn't up to par and wasn't what we needed in anticipation of an outbreak to begin with because of various reasons, but let's say because of um, general unpreparedness, lack of resources, and then very disjointed communications across those who people who have the platforms. Uh, whether we're talking about the federal government, state or local, there's been disjointed communication and that all of that could have been prevented because when people are in a state of fear, they look to trusted and credible sources and they need clear and consistent communication. And because we're playing catch up and because it's evident that the risk communication community's advice wasn't heeded well in advance, we are now seeing this mismatch and it really just should have been the same message from the World Health Organization to major governments and down from the nation state level to state to local. Because of that, there's a lot of learning to come out of this. I mean, a lot of this actually was developed for the CDC from the risk communication community post bird flu. So it's been years that we've had this information of how to best communicate. The few things that I wanna make sure the audience takes away, a few bullet points to remember when you're communicating, and this is true for whether you're communicating at a, at a higher level, like a federal level, or if you're just communicating to your constituents, your consumers, whoever the stakeholders are for you and your business, you need to know that your end recipient wants to know the truth. And we have to take people, even though we're cognitively lazy, people are good at processing information, but they need to get all the information. And at a limited amount at a time. So don't just you know drop it all at once and make sure that information is presented in a way um, that reduces expert speak and is limited and is presented consistently. And people don't understand necessarily cumulative risks. Remember that, what exposure means versus consistent exposure to a risk. People fall prey to those biases that I talked about in the beginning, whether a risk is familiar, endemic, whether it's voluntary, and that we can't trust necessarily our ability to predict people's behaviors. We want to hope that people make sensible decisions, but for them to do that, and this is my final takeaway that I hope people remember, people require relevant, accurate, timely, credible information. That is key. Amen. Very well said. Dr. Chakraborty, thank you so much for being with us today. And we hope that your Earth Day three hours online goes really, really well. We really need that type of information today. So thank you again for being with us. You've been listening to WVU Marketing Communications Today, brought to you live from West Virginia University, a weekly program that sits at the intersection of data-driven decision-making and marketing practice, only on the Funnel Radio Network, for at-work listeners like you.